chapter 8, as I said before, the few Bibles, if you're not used to looking at a Bible, it's not page 974 in mine. Probably won't be in yours either. But if you're not used to looking at a Bible and you're using one of the few Bibles provided, that's the page you want. Or Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Um, since I am in a police uniform, I thought I should tell you something about the fire department. You had uh, There was a fire out in a chemical plant, and the CEO was standing outside worried to death because there were these expensive, valuable formulas on the inside. Well, the professional of the fire, fire department comes in and stands at the edges trying to put the fire out, and they don't have any success. The CEO of the company says, I'll give you $50,000 if you get in there and you save those formulas. They try. So I'll give you $100,000. Just then, the volunteer fire department truck comes through, rams through the gate, goes right to the middle, puts out the fire. The man's so excited. He says, I'm going to give you each $200,000. You know, they're yours, no strings attached. But just out of curiosity, what are you going to do with the money? And the chief of the volunteer fire department says, well, first, I figure we'll get the brakes fixed on the truck. Imagine people were honest with police officers. They get pulled over. I'm sorry, officer, I didn't realize my radar detector wasn't plugged in. Just the, the kind of... Difficult things that have to be dealt with in difficult situations. You wonder, what is it that would motivate a person to live in circumstances like that? You know, there are some people who are overwhelmingly pessimistic. They say, you know, this is just the way things are. In fact, when you see uh, officers and people like that that start to abuse their power, it's because they become pessimists. Right? They come to think, well, you know, this is just how it is. This is just what you have to do. There's some people, though, who are so optimistic that they pretend that there's no problems at all. But the Bible doesn't present either one of those kind of pictures, does it? Let me read to you from Romans chapter 8, verse 18. And we're going to read this whole little text, this paragraph, and then we'll go back and look at it piece by piece. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For when a man sees, why doth he get hope for? But if we hope for what we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for this day. We thank you for these people here, God, today that uh, sacrifice themselves so willingly, Lord, for us. We just ask, Father, that you would help us to see that the creation is now in bondage, but that the new creation is already done. That although right now there is slavery to decay and corruption, Lord, that although right now sin is so deeply entrenched, that ultimately through the power of your Son, you will bring us into newness of life. 
I ask God for your, your blessings today. I ask God for the power of your spirit. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you as their Savior, that they would today before it's everlasting too late. But the real change that can only come from the inside out would come today. I ask these things in Jesus' name. We've been going through Romans chapter 8, and it's uh, been convenient that it's lined up with our series. You know, last week, last Sunday was actually the beginning of Police Week. Police Week actually ended yesterday. But last Sunday, Colleen reminded me, was this little-known holiday called Mother's Day. Um, and asked if I thought that it would be the best idea to try to recognize birth of fathers and mothers in the same day. And the answer to that question was no, it was not. And uh, so we moved it, and I'm grateful for the church being so flexible. But it does give us a chance to, to come together and kind of have some reminders. You know, we don't have to, as Christians, we're not bound by holidays the way that the Jews were bound by Passover and the Day of Atonement and things like that. But it is convenient to set aside certain times in our memory to remind us about the things that we normally forget. We are a forgetful people. That means that we have to celebrate Mother's Day because otherwise you would not remember all the things that your mother's done for you. We have to celebrate Father's Day or you wouldn't remember the things that Father's Day has done for you. You have to celebrate your wife's birthday or she will no longer be happy with you. We have to have this rhythm built into our life to remind us about things. Because we're forgetful. You know, why do Christians celebrate Easter? Well, it's not because we know the exact day of the year that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's because we need to be reminded that he did raise from the dead and that he does live. It's not because we don't celebrate Jesus' resurrection on every Sunday. It's because we are forgetful people. We lose a sense of balance. And so I think it's convenient that as a church we've set aside one day a year to think about those in the first responder field who come and sacrifice for us. But even so, we are not a church of Richwood. We're not a church of Brazoria County. We're not a church of good civics. We are a church of the living God. And so I want to know, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach us here? And in Romans 8, we've been wrestling with this idea that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, Romans 8, 1. We've been dealing with this idea that if you are in Jesus, then something dramatic has already changed. And yet, at the same time, how many of you have noticed that some things don't seem to have changed at all? Say, God has forgiven me, but sin still seems to constantly pop up in my life. God has come, and God has said, you're free. And yet sometimes I get lusts, and I get desires, and I get sucked down into things that I shouldn't do. The problem is we are citizens of two worlds. In our hearts, we are part of the new creation. But in our bodies, we walk around in the midst of the fall. Now, I don't know anybody that deals with that as much, of course, as our first responders do. It starts out, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Because here's what I'm saying. The sufferings that we endure now are not worth comparing with what God is going to do. Now that word worth is a word that means weight. The word for the scales. 
It says, the sufferings of this present time do not register on the scale of the glory that God has for us. We do imagine if uh, you know you were going to weigh yourself, maybe you felt like this from time to time, you step on the scale, you looked down at the number, you step back, you're like, okay, take my shoes off. <laughs> step on it again, you don't really like that, you say, you're not gonna go wash my hair, maybe some dandruff or something. Is really weighing me down. Does somebody have a Clorox wipe of some kind? There's probably some dust on this because this number just can't be right. When Paul says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of comparison with the glory which shall be revealed in us, he says that the suffering that we experience now is dust on the scale compared to the weight of glory that God has for us. You know, we experience suffering. We experience suffering in lots of ways. We suffer with Christ. We suffer in our struggle against sin. We suffer just because we live in a broken world marred by brokenness. But all of that suffering, he says, you can't weigh it on the same scale as the glory that God has for us. The glory, I want you to notice this, which shall be revealed in us. The ESV translates it to us, which is not right. It's what ice, E-I-S in Greek. It means through and on the way out of us. It means the glory that is already hidden inside of us coming out. You notice this, the word reveal. If you're a Christian, God has already put his glory in your heart. But you can't see it. See, Christians look an awful lot like non-Christians, don't they? Is some of you... Have got brown hair, some have got blonde hair, some have got different colors of skin, some of you are thin, some of you are less so. <laughs> I can't look at somebody and say, oh, that person's a Christian. You say, well, I can look at your behavior, but here's the real problem. Wouldn't that be nice if Christians were so consistently perfect in their behavior that I could look and say, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, no, you're not. And how many of you want to be subjected to that standard? How many of you want me to look at your life and investigate your sins? In fact, in 1 Timothy, Paul says that the sins of some are not revealed later, are not revealed until later, while the good works of others follow after them. Some people, you first meet them and you think, wow, that's just a sour person. And then as you get to know them better, you find out better. Some people you think, wow, what a godly person. And as you get to know them better, you find out better. The glory is not yet revealed in us. Even though you're a Christian, you still have aches and pains. You still struggle with sin. You still have problems in your life. You see, but that problem, that suffering, is not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be shown with the glory that's going to be revealed. Let's look here in verse 19. He says, For the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, the earnest expectation. Have you ever had an earnest expectation? When we were little, um, we had a... I don't know. I don't even know what year this was. This was a long time ago. We had a piggy bank in my mom and dad's room. And it was a giant crayon. The yellow crayon. Classic. 
Yeah, I say giant. Well, probably not. But in my mind, you have this towering thing jump and put money in. And the rule was, the, the condition was, when we filled that up, we were going to go to Disney World. Now, I don't know exactly what those two things had to do with each other, but when I was a kid, it made perfect sense. There's a lot of pennies in there. We're going to Disney World. <laughs> and so how do you think, as that thing filled up, how do you think my brother and I felt? Earnest expectation. Going to change around here? He starts trying to fill it up. There's this kind of leaning in. Earnest expectation. The pastor, I've done weddings before, obviously. And you talk to the bride and the groom before the wedding. You try to talk with them while the bride's getting ready and the groom's getting ready and they're just, the teeth are chattering and they're just on edge. That's earnest expectation. The Bible says that the whole universe, the whole creation, has got its teeth chattering, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. That the mountains clap their hands. You know, the, the creation itself, animals groan, the whole world's broken. You experience that in natural evil, storms and fires and things that are not related to humanity, but are still part of the curse. Hey, grown. You say, why is it that the sufferings that we experience are not worthy of comparison? Because the sufferings we experience are just pointing toward. They're just the ache of waiting for something to do. We're going to see that in a really clear metaphor in just a minute. But he says, the whole creation waits for the sons of God to be manifested, for the sons of God to be revealed. Look at verse 20. For the creature was made subject to vanity. Creation was made a slave to vanity. What's vanity? Vanity is corruption, it's futility, it's passing away. You notice that the whole world is a slave to vanity. Everything the world makes rots away. And we've got a beautiful building here. I'm really proud of our building. We spent a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of money and a lot of everything making this building. But do you know that if we open up the doors and we all leave, that this will not remain a very pretty building for very long. The rot away. How many times have you ever bought a bag of vegetables or something and put it on the counter? And then you got ready to eat them. And then you opened them up to cook them and you decided you weren't going to eat them anymore. All of our best things are slaves to rot. I joke with uh, Chief Corp that, you know, it's my goal to put him out of business. But the reality is, I know that I'm not going to do that. I would like to do that, you know. I'd like to have us as a church reach out and change so many hearts that there's no reason for a police department anymore. But the creation is subject to vanity. The sin is too strong. The downward pull of corruption is too great. We're not going to successfully abolish the need for the police. There's slavery. Slavery to vanity. Slavery to futility. And you experience that in your own life. You ever feel like a slave? Slave to things that don't matter? We talk about this a lot. Uh, we're starting our Financial Peace University class tomorrow. But some of you are slaves to Lady Beast and MasterCard, right? Money, money, money. 
And how much success does that give you? How much satisfaction does that give you? It's slavery to smoke. It's enslavement to something that cannot and will not last. All of creation is under this curse. All of creation is marked by the slavery. The creature was made subject to vanity. Now, what made creation subject to vanity? Did you know, they wake up one morning and say, boy, I sure would like to be a slave to sin and weakness and shame. No, not willingly. But by reason of him who had subjected the same to It wasn't a choice. Creation was subjected by someone else. We read in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, and God says, cursed is the ground because he is sin. Now, why does God put a curse on humanity? Why does God say the world is going to be bound by corruption, that everything good you make is going to wash away like a sandcastle? It's not because God hates you, right? It's in hope. So I want to talk here for just a moment about the pessimistic attitude that says, you know, this is just the way things have always been. This is just the way things are always going to be. Somebody with that attitude is not the kind of person who puts on a suit and runs into a burning building. Very long. Somebody that goes into management. There is politics, something like that. There is a need in our hearts to recognize that things are not how they should be. There's lots of ways to witness to people. But maybe one of the clearest ways to help someone understand what the message of the Bible is is that things are not how they should be. And you know that, don't you? If you're a Christian, you know it in one way. If you're not a Christian, you know it in a different way, but you still know it. There's your natural body, the old creation, <laughs> groans. It waits. It says things are not how they should be. Somehow I'm a slave. Somehow something is broken. But on the flip side, we need to know that that brokenness, if that's all that you see, then you're not going to live the way that God wants you to live. If, if all you see is, oh boy, things sure are terrible, and you go around like the Eeyore of Richwood, there's no power in everything. You know, somebody says, you know, we probably ought to go help those wood differences in here. <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, when we talk about some of the struggles police officers face, sometimes that's something they struggle with, isn't it? You know, well, you know, I tried to do this, and it didn't do any good. What's the point? They're going to go. I don't know. I was going to say go work in the... But I shouldn't do that. Go work a firefighter. <laughs> say, oh, it doesn't do any good. Why even try? Have you ever met somebody with that kind of an attitude? If that's all that you see, then you are of no value. That's terrible. So don't say I'm of no value. You know, I'm a snowflake. I'm very special. I'm sunshine. But you know, Jesus says that if the salt has lost its savor, it's henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. Jesus says that some of you are good for nothing. Pretty serious thing to hear from the God of the universe. But look at this. That's not all that there is. 
It's not just slavery and futility and vanity. It's that all those things are groaning out for something better. But not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. When God put the world under a curse, he did it in hope. Now, hope is not, you know, I hope that I win the lottery, or I hope that whatever. That's not, that's not hope. Hope is, I look forward to what I know God is going to do. That's biblical hope. Biblical hope is not, oh, I wish, I wish, I wish. Hope is taking the promise of God and waiting for him to bring it. So, verse 21. Because the creature itself, the very creation, the very universe, shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Creation will be set free from slavery to rot and brought into the freedom of the children of God. The freedom of the children of God, the glorious liberty of the children of God. You see, one of my favorite songs, uh, it's in our blue book, I don't think we've ever sung it, but it's a glorious freedom. Once I was bound by chains, are in better. Once like a slave, I struggled in vain, but I received a glorious freedom when Jesus broke my fetters and plans. As a Christian, God says, I've made you free. We already read this last week. The law of Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. There's freedom in Jesus. Freedom that says you don't have to keep on slip sliding down the path of decay. You don't have to keep on going deeper and deeper into things you shouldn't do. You don't have to be getting farther and farther from God by the gravitational pull of your own slavery. And not just you. He says, the whole creation will be set free. So we have this counterbalance. We have the idea that all is vanity and striving after wind, that all is futility, that we shouldn't even bother to do anything. We're wrong. We need to understand that it is God's purpose to restore all things. But at the same time, when will all things be restored? It is not that we are going to recruit the best firefighters and policemen and EMS, prison guards, everything. That's not how we fix it, is it? The problem is the law is always playing catch-up. You can't go and say, you're about to commit a crime tomorrow, and I'm going to go ahead and arrest you. The fire department doesn't go out and park in front of a house and say, I think this one's going to catch on fire. So you go there when someone's already committed a crime, when the house is already on fire. EMS doesn't come to your house and say, you know, I'm sorry to wait here in case you have a heart attack. Something happens, and then you call. And so you're always losing. And in fact, in the best of circumstances, you realize... You're not going to save every life. You're not going to stop every crime. You're not going to protect everybody's property. You're not going to wait. So what kind of a person does it take to say, I know that I'm not going to win, but I'm going to go anyway. I know that I'm not going to completely solve this problem, but I'm going to do all that I can. I know that I'm not going to save every life, stop every crime, I know that ultimately the only final success will be when Jesus himself comes and does it. But I am going to do the best that I can to imitate him now. And then, of course, I'm reminded 
that drive this whole theme. At the end of that, the glorious liberty of the children of God. Okay, we even talked about this last week. That's the problem with going through Romans 8, is it's so interconnected, it's hard to break it into chunks. Children of God. The freedom that comes is the freedom of the children of God. What do the children of God do? What do children do? Children imitate their parents. Have you ever noticed that? We talked last week about how uh, when my grandpa died, my uh, grandma had my dad come and re-recorded the voicemail on their machine so she wouldn't have to listen to my grandpa's voice. So my dad came and re-recorded it. A week later, she asked me to come and record it because listening to my dad's voice was still listening to my grandpa's voice. The family resemblance. You've got a family resemblance. Maybe you uh, butt heads with one of your kids or one of your parents or whatever. And somebody you know, says, well, you sure did get your mom's temper, didn't you? So, no, my mom still got her temper. <laughs> <laughs> You got a family resemblance. Well, if your God is a reconciling, peace-giving, liberty-bringing, death-breaking God, and you are his child, then you are going to try to have a family resemblance. You ever see, well, <laughs> I saw Annabelle poster on Facebook this week about her daughter, Haley, with her in the bath with her doll, baby doll, and trying to get everything together, trying to do take a bath like she's supposed to. Then Haley says to her mom, how do you do this? Being a mommy's hard. <laughs> now, she wants to be a mom to her baby doll because she wants to be like her mom. I was talking to... Uh, well, I was talking to somebody about one of the little boys here. I'm talking about, you know, well, he's going to be so smart, he needs to go to college. Well, he says he doesn't want to go to college. He wants to work in such and such like his dad. But for, for better or for worse, we look at people in our life and say, I want to be like that. You look at your parents and say, I want to be like that. So why would you, when you say creation is subject to vanity, a slave to vanity, and yet ultimately God's coming, how do you take that mixture of Darkness and hope, and live in that. I think the very best way to do it is to say, I want to be like my dad. If I know that God is going to come and that God is going to break the bonds of corruption, that God is going to set people free and set creation free, then I want to copy that as much as I can. Now, I may not have a real baby. I may not have real food. This may be Play-Doh and plastic <coughs> knives, but I'm going to copy what I've seen my parents doing. We say, I'm going to copy what I see God doing. I want to bring peace in the midst of chaos. I want to bring restoration in the midst of decay. And so we have people who do an unwinnable but a preciously necessary task. Copy what's coming. And so by doing that, proclaim what is to come. So there's not total hopelessness because God's the one who fixes it. But things are not how they will be. That's the Christian message, isn't it? That God made the world perfect, but that in sin the, the world fell into corruption, but that Jesus has come to plant the seed to make it right, and that Jesus will make it right. We call it fall, redemption, restoration. Three plots of the Bible. Fall, when Adam fell in the garden, 
restoration when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Uh, I'm sorry, Recon reconciliation when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Restoration when Jesus comes back and brings all things in subjection. That's the Bible message. And so by standing here in between the comings, by working hard, by saying the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of comparison with what happens, by working hard in that way, you proclaim that it's not over, but that there's hope. You bring hopelessness to a world, you bring hope to a world of hopelessness. You say that in the right word. I know some people who bring hopelessness to a world of hope, but they're not here. <laughs> bring hope to a world of hopelessness. See, when we can fix our hearts on trusting God and saying, God, I'm not everything that I ought to be, but I know that you're going to make me all that I need to be. If you live that out in your life every day, I don't care if you're a first responder or if you're a teacher or if you're whatever. You work that out every day. Every day you look at yourself and you say, I am in bondage to corruption. My flesh, I'm constantly giving into sin. But I'm going to fight against it every day because I know one day Jesus is going to conquer it completely. I choose to try to be like my heavenly father. Because I have hope. Isn't it a shame to have people who have no hope? Isn't it a shame how many Christians live like those who have nothing to live for? We do. We know that in your heart, God has already begun, begun to work, which he will complete. That's right, verse 22. I'm dragging on here. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. You know, that word groaning is uh, groans in childbirth. Travaileth is birth labor. The old creation is in birth pain. You want to know the suffering that you have? You want to know these different things that you experience? It's birth pangs. If you're a Christian, then God has put his image in your heart completely. And he is birthing a new creation in you. It won't be finished until he raises you in a new body, in the newness of life. But already, the struggle that you have with sin is birth pangs. It's the one that God has put inside of you working its way out. It's the life that God's put inside of you working its way out. He's put birth pangs in you. And the whole creation hangs in birth. And then, you want to understand why it is that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of comparison with the glory which shall be revealed in us? I mean, think about a woman in labor. See, I don't know how many times somebody could go through that much pain in any other context and then a year later say, you know, I think I'd like to do that again. <laughs> Not like I've never heard of anybody saying, you know, I was I was shot. And, uh, but I think I'd like to do it again. Colleen was in labor for 18 hours before they said this baby's coming out another direction. Okay? She says, you know, I'd like to have some more kids. You know why that is? The sufferings are not anything in comparison to what's coming. You say, oh, we struggle so much. Oh, we lost dozens. 22. First responders this year in Texas alone. What pain, what grief, what sorrow. But it's not worthy of comparison with what God will do. 
you say, oh, I struggle with sin. You know, I try to quit this. And I just feel like I'm constantly being pulled back and forth. And God says, if you could just see what I was working on. If you could just see the hope that I have through the life of my son in you. Then you'd understand it's not worth any comparison. Some of you, you know, heard about people who have different surgeries, different medical problems, different things you're struggling with. You know, that is your body under the curse. Because nobody had uh, diabetes in the Garden of Eden. Your body under the curse, aching and groaning. But God says, oh, there's something better coming. If you didn't experience that pain, you wouldn't know something wonderful is coming out. God says, I want you to be uncomfortable. Because it's not your home. And you say, well, you don't know what I've been through. How can you say that it's not worth comparing? The problem is not that I don't understand what you've experienced. The problem is that you don't understand what God has promised you. Look here. The whole creation, not just people, but all of creation, including people, all the material world, this current world, groans and travails in childbirth as the new creation is being born. And not only they, not only the creation, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to win the redemption of our body. Watch this for me. The creation, the old creation groans, waiting for this to come. But you know, the new creation groans too. Your heart is already the beginning of God's new creation. There's only one material thing that already exists that exists in the new creation. That's the body of Jesus. He started to raise in the new creation. On the first day, he said, let there be light and raise the light of the world. First day. But your heart will last forever. God says, I'm giving you a new heart. This new heart is part of the new world. We're seated in the heavenly places of Christ Jesus. And that new spirit grows, aches, cries out in childbirth, even as the world does around you, waiting. Waiting for what? The adoption. Look, we're the children of God. We're waiting for our adoption to be revealed. Why is the adoption? Think about it like this. If you filled out some paperwork and you adopted somebody who was an orphan, from the moment you sign that paperwork, they're legally your child. But they're still in the orphanage until you get in the car and go pick them up. When you were saved, when you realized you were a sinner and said, Jesus, you're my only help, God adopted you, made you his child. And he promised that he would come pick you up. But that's what we're groaning for. It's for God to come say, I want everybody to know that you're my child. I'm going to take you home. The redemption of the body, when this power of sin is broken, once and for all. We are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he get hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for You're saved when you place your hope in Jesus, when you say, God, I expect you to do what you said you were going to do. You saw it, you wouldn't have any hope. But you get up every day and you say, I'm going to follow Jesus today. You walk in hope. You walk hope 
is both. Hope is saying, yes, the world is in slavery to sin. Yes, things are not how they should be. But yes, God is going to make them right. Hope is what says you can run into situations that other people run away from. Hope is what says that we grieve and we mourn about the state of our world, but we know God is going to fix it. And that all those who place their trust in Christ, all those who realize that beyond anything anyone else has ever done, that Jesus took on their sin debt and died in their place, and all those can have forgiveness of both sins and eternal life, that God wants to start his new creation in you. You say, oh, I sure would like to live in a creation that's not bound as a slave to sin, not bound as a slave to corruption. Let me invite you to move. <laughs> the Bible says he has transferred us from the domain of darkness. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. God says, if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you died for me. I know that Jesus died in my place and rose again, and I want to ask you to forgive me and save me. God makes a new you in your heart right now. And that new creation never fails. God never starts something he doesn't And so you say, oh, I want freedom. It's so terrible. We've got these people struggling. God says, if you will start on the inside out, let me take care of the rest. You come, you trust me on the inside, and I'll fix the outside. In the meantime, you labor in hope. We're so grateful for our first responders that come in difficult situations and come and rescue us. But on another hand, they did not have entire choice because they were all born into the same kingdom of death as we were. We are all born in this world of corruption, this slavery to sin. But there's only one who was free from all those things and chose voluntarily to put himself in our shoes. Only one who was born, who eternally existed, free from corruption, and chose to bring himself under the law, chose to bring himself obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that's the one who brings us through. So as we stand and our musicians come forward, we're going to give you a hint of invitation and give you a chance for response. If you have never trusted Jesus as you say, if you are not a part of that new creation, if you don't have hope, how will you have hope this morning? How are you to come and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, but I trust Jesus. I want you to start a new creation in my heart. And you will, right? And you say, oh, Lord, I don't know how people can stand in between two worlds like this, God, but I want to empower you from the inside out through the power of my Holy Spirit to be my child.